Chapter The Duquesnes There are still areas on Earth, like remote inhospitable areas in Alaska and Antarctica, unspoiled by human hands. In contrast, extensive human contact usually leaves a land constantly struggling to regain the natural beauty it once possessed. The Subarctic Grande Prairie in Alberta, Canada, is a perfect example of this struggle. Being just northwest of Edmonton, it's an area of approximately 60,000 residents currently focused on farming, forestry, and oil. It's a productive area, able to employ thousands of people while the surrounding areas were sporadically populated with small towns and private farmlands. Several kilometers east of Rainbow Lake, one such farming site was converted into a private compound by a reclusive billionaire desiring to enjoy the serenity of nature, far from the noisy populace associated with human technology. The compound with its lone dirt road stood out from the rest of the land as a testament of human contradiction. The owner's desire to embrace the natural beauty of the land brought devastation through the construction of the compound situated on obsidian rock. Surrounded by electrified, three-meter-tall wire fences with curved barbed wire encasing the top, the compound boasted warning signs jutting from the ground every 30 meters to warn off any wanderers or curious individuals. The posts emitted a low-frequency sound whenever wildlife came too close, warning them off and preventing an unfortunate electrocution. This approach was rather strange for someone wanting to be close to nature, but it was totally consistent with an eccentric personality. Within this compound, whose circumference was approximately 2 kilometers, there was a central facility and many small houses surrounding it. The working staff, their families and guests on rare occasions, lived in the smaller houses while the central facility was the billionaire's main residence. The setup represented a camp-like atmosphere, but with state-of-the-art housing facilities, all the amenities of comfortable living, and several large satellite dishes to keep in contact with the outside world. Residents of the nearby towns shunned the billionaire and his ridiculous compound, going as far as to call it a country within a country or even a large Canadian cult. Many didn't know the people inside, but as long as the occupants weren't a bother, they were tolerated. Within this compound, the Duquesne family found their current resting place. After months of moving around in secret to elude the forces still looking for them, Julie Tarkas was contacted by the reclusive billionaire who had happened to come across some of the journal excerpts she had so carefully placed on the internet. Intrigued by what he'd read, he wanted to learn more and eventually invited them to his compound. After the Duquesnes arrived, everyone in the compound slowly learned of their new visitors' beliefs and greeted them with apprehension. The entire Duquesne clan lived on the compound. Sean, Lissa, Nicole and Brad lived in their own small house, while Anne-Marie and Julie lived in another. Life was slow and boring, but for the time being, stable and safe. For the kids, there really wasn't much to do. With only a few others their age, it was almost like solitary confinement. They couldn't contact their old friends or make any type of contact outside the compound. As for the adults, it was an answer to all their prayers to find a safe place they could call home for a while. Since the compound was so isolated from the life they were used to, Brad Nicole and some of the staff's children were taken west to the Hay River for a short excursion. Since it was summer in Alberta, the river was flowing and the surrounding area was a nice place to visit and have fun, a change of pace from the compound. However, Nicole was having a hard time adjusting to the mundane life in Canada away from her close friends and the variety of things to do in a city. She knew why they were here and even shuddered whenever she thought too deeply on what they'd recently gone through. 
She tried to be mature about it, but found herself slipping into depression from time to time. As she sat on the riverbed, throwing rocks into the rushing water, the other kids were running around having fun. Brad had no problems adjusting to the changes and making friends while Nicole remained distant when others her age made approaches toward her, hoping to invite her to some activities. Eventually, they withdrew, gave her some space, and waited for her to open up. Unbeknownst to Nicole, a tall guardian angel looked down on her. He knew she would adapt to her new life, but he allowed her to find her own way during this difficult time. This was something Nicole had to do on her own. Detecting a commotion close by, the angel quickly turned. What was going to happen was out of his control, but he smiled, wondering how Nicole was going to handle it. Nicole grabbed another rock. Instead of throwing from a sitting position, she stood. As she was ready to throw the rock, she caught a hard thud on her head. Ow! She whispered as she dropped the rock and felt her head. It was wet to the touch. She looked on the ground to see what had hit her. A small fish was flopping on the shore with legs still in it. Oh man! Oh my goodness! She heard her brother Brad saying far behind her. Why do you stand up? Dang! Are you okay? A fish? You threw a fish at me! She said softly as she turned. You hit me! With a fish. What's wrong with you? You stood up! Brad pleaded. Why do you stand up? I just wanted to scare you. And you stood up. He then smiled and pointed a finger at his sister. You look so funny. That thing whacked your head good. Shut up. Brad started to laugh uncontrollably as he recalled the look on his sister's face. Then he looked at her and realized he needed to quickly put distance between them. He took off in the opposite direction. Where are you going? Get back here, you little turd. Nicole took a few steps after her brother, then stopped. She looked at the still flopping fish, felt a surge of compassion, and tossed it back into the river. Turning on a dime, her mind flashed back to the fish hitting her on her head. She smiled as she slowly gained on her brother. It was kind of funny, but she'd never let him know that once she caught him and pounded him into submission. Nicole's guardian angel slowly shook his head as he remembered how resilient children could be. Anne-Marie sat comfortably on a reclining chair with a pen and a legal pad in hand as she captured her thoughts on paper. She smiled as her hand moved in a fluid motion, recording rich inner thoughts with deep meaning. Writing poems seemed to have calmed her mind once she came to the compound. It brought her stability and self-expression, since everyone else was too busy or preoccupied to hear the ramblings of an old woman. Looking down at the poem, she decided to call it Clouds and read it out loud. White expanses in a sky of blue. I'd always look up and wonder, what would it be like to touch you with my hand? Never again looking down at what used to keep me bound. To fly away and to be finally free. No more pain, no more worry. To be lifted up to fly in the sky. Making the clouds my home, never looking back. To be engulfed with you, pure, untouched white plumes. To make you my home. Oh, if the clouds were my home. Anne-Marie smiled at the poem and turned the page to write another one when she was interrupted by her roommate, Julie Targus. Why do you write the same type of poems all the time? You're like a little kid crying about wanting to go home. You really do need to change your point of view. Julie said as she walked downstairs into the living room where Henry sat. I mean, come on. Are you really giving up on life? There's so much for us yet to do, she jested. I already did my part, Henry mumbled. Excuse me, I didn't hear you, said Julie, sitting down next to her friend. Oh, nothing. So, how's it going up there in your computer center? Is it everything you've ever wanted and more, 
she said, changing the subject. A huge smile appeared on Julie's face as she recalled her emotions the very first day she'd stepped into the computer center. It was all she could have wanted in the latest custom-made server with three separate workstations so she could multitask with ease. Each workstation had two 23-inch widescreen monitors directly above it, and her chair was made of soft mahogany leather. Her greatest joy was a well-stocked refrigerator and pantry, making it so she would never have to leave the room, as long as she resisted the urge to either sleep or go to the bathroom. It's awesome. Yeah, that look on your face said it all. Annery looked at the blank piece of paper and immediately started thinking on what poem to write next. Julie's thoughts focused back on Anne-Marie. You've been keeping to yourself since we got here. Are you alright? What's bothering you? Nothing, dear. Don't you worry about me. I'm just fine. Anne-Marie said without taking her gaze off the paper. Only when she saw Julie's hand on it did she look up again. Want to go for a walk? I feel like stretching my legs, said Julie. After the two put on their light jackets, since they weren't yet accustomed to the mild summers, they took a non-eventful stroll along the inner perimeter of the compound. Neither talked much except for an occasional comment of how spacious the land seemed to stretch beyond the fence. They continued along a random path until they ended near the front entrance of a familiar house. Julie looked at Anne-Marie who shrugged, indicating she didn't mind making an impromptu visit to the occupants. Seconds after Julie knocked on the door, Lisa Duquesne opened it. With unexpected enthusiasm, Lisa grabbed Julie in a big bear hug and then repeated it on Anne-Marie. Whoa, said Julie, scratching her head in shock. You're acting like you haven't seen us in years. We're just a few houses down, you know. So? It's been far too long since your last visit. When was it again? That's right, yesterday. You know, I really wanted you all to stay in the same house as us. We were together for far too long before we were blessed by coming here. It's like we don't see each other as much as we used to, but I understand how you need your own privacy and all. Oh, my. Her hands flew up to her cheeks. Where are my manners? Come in, come in. The kids are on a field trip, and Sean's meeting with our hospital host. Would you like some coffee tea? Or maybe some crumpets? She jested as she looked at Julie while guiding them to the living room. For a long time, they had all worried about Lisa, who had problems adjusting to the constant clandestine moving. It was a difficult life, but the current stability of living in a home again had let her bubbly personality resurface. It wasn't the home she had raised her children in, but it was a home nevertheless, a resemblance of stability. At this moment, that was all she wanted and what she needed to take her mind off the spiritual darkness hovering just outside her field of perception. After everyone was comfortably seated, Lisa continued her barrage of long-winded talking. I was just wondering what to do for dinner. Brad always wants some sort of bagel bologna sandwich, while Nickel craves something starchy. Sean says he doesn't really care, but I know he does. He's a picky eater, but doesn't want to put any pressure on me to make a particular meal. And now, since you're here, what do you want to eat? You know you're staying for dinner, right? Now what meal will satisfy everyone? I think I'll have to forget about Brad's bologna. I really can't think of a dish that has anything to do with that. Lisa paused and looked at the two. Oh my, what are my manners? Did I ask you if you wanted either coffee or tea? Anne-Marie lowered her head and shook it slowly, while Julie, wide-eyed, just stared at Lisa and then suddenly burst into laughter. What? Lisa said, wondering if she missed something. What? I asked you that already? Julie held up her hand. Lisa, I've never seen this side of you. 
Neither have I, Anne-Marie said. You're always so calm and collected. Today, you're on some verbal speed track. Lisa remembered what she had said when the two women came into the house and slowly smiled. Oh, my goodness. That's... I don't know what to say. Both Anne-Marie and Julie laughed out loud. Once Anne-Marie regained her composure, she said, I guess it feels good to have something stable again, after we've been running around for a while. Lisa looked around the living room. Yeah, but it's not home. Nothing can be like what we've lost, but it reminds me of how it used to be before all this started. Sometimes I ask God why he allowed us to go through this. When all of this started, I never imagined our lives would end up like this. The kids seem to be handling it well, said Julie. They're good, God bless them. But what about later? What kind of life are we mapping out for them? What about school and friends? Yeah, that's hard, but we have to trust that God will turn this around, said Julie. It's just so shocking that she all runs so deep. It's like there's no place on earth to run without them showing up sooner or later. Anne-Marie nudged Julie, but it was too late. The damage was done. Lissa's demeanor paled as she considered the possibility of leaving this current haven. If they were forced to leave this place, she didn't know whether she could take it. Her eyes began to pool with tears as she looked at Julie. I don't know what I will. I guess I'll just move again. God help me. Not another move, she mumbled. Anne-Marie shifted to where Lisa sat and put her arm around her. We all have our cross to bear here. No one ever said it would be easy or that everything would be made plain to answer our questions of why. But we have to put our trust in him, no matter how hard life throws a wrench in our plans and desires. God has seen us through the worst of times, given us Sean back after he was lost for so long, and has protected us from things both seen and unseen. We just have to hold on. Things will get better. Julie felt awkward for opening her mouth. She should have known Lisa was having a hard time adjusting to this lifestyle. With the way she was talking, she was just eager to reclaim a resemblance of the life she'd had before she all entered into it. I'm sorry, Lisa. I, I should realize this is hard on you. It's hard for all of us, but we're not alone since we have each other and Christ to comfort us. Lisa wiped away the escaping tears on her cheek, calmed herself, and looked at her mother-in-law and Julie. Oh boy, I didn't expect that to come out. Thanks, I. I guess I needed to get that off my chest. She paused before continuing. You guys want to hang around for a while? I'd really like your company, and maybe you could stay for dinner. Sure, not a problem. It's not like we have anything else to do around here. Anne-Marie said as she turned to Julie. Oh, I'm sorry. I know you're busy with your computers, but maybe you can spend time with us for dinner. Julie smiled and nodded before it suddenly dawned on her that Anne-Murray was battling something significant too. Those poems in her words indicated that Anne-Marie was having problems with her role within the group. She was integral in finding the journals, but ever since then, she felt lost and unimportant in everything else. Julie realized she was spending way too much time in front of her computers and not much time with her friend. She took a deep breath as the thought that she needed to become a better listener dawned on her. It can wait, said Julie. Let's try to get that dinner done before everyone returns. Sean sat comfortably in a reclining black leather chair next to Matt Bouchard, the multi-billionaire that graciously opened his compound to them. Matt sat in the same type of chair fully reclined, hands behind his head, and stared straight at the ceiling. The room was a well-decorated den sparing no expense in its decor and level of comfort. 
Encompassing the walls of half the room were leather-bound books, carefully placed alphabetically by author in custom-made mahogany shelves. As Sean waited for Matt's response, he looked at the two similar reclining chairs opposite the men and wondered how many past meetings had been held in this room. Matt was a well-educated, intelligent man that had made his billions the old-fashioned way with hard work, determination, and a level of ruthlessness when necessary. His greatest asset was that he was a man with an open mind. Rarely did he dismiss anything until it was thoroughly and exhaustively researched. Currently, his focus was on the contents of Fairchild's journals and the evidence Julie had provided about Sheol. He didn't consider himself a religious person but found the overwhelming evidence irrefutable, which opened up so many other questions. Some could be answered, while Sean had problems trying to make the others plain for Matt to understand. You know, this would make a great movie, Matt said, still looking at the ceiling in his reclined position. If it weren't for all the evidence, that's exactly how I look at it. A work of fiction, something made up from some ingenious author's vivid imagination. The evidence in itself I can't refute, but what you told me your mother did from eluding the FBI to finding the journals, and then making this she-all-global organization look foolish, I find, well, too tall of a tale to swallow. Matt turned his head to Sean, don't you think? Sean sighed before responding. Matt, I told you before, there are things which can be easily explained and others that can't. But you have to understand that we're dealing with things that aren't just physical but spiritual. There will be circumstances with spiritual ramifications that we can't begin to understand. And this is such a case, asked Matt. Exactly, Sean said, rather too excited in his hope that Matt was finally beginning to understand. The Bible is filled with such stories with miraculous things happening that can't be explained. When you deal with unexplainable physical events that were due to the direct spiritual intervention from God, they're hard to accept unless you were an eyewitness. That's where faith comes in. Matt looked back up at the ceiling. That's rather too simplistic for me to accept. I don't doubt that you believe what you're saying since you consider yourself a witness. But let's just say for now, I need to think on this further. He turned back to Sean and smiled. I'm not calling you a liar, Sean. I just need to think on this more. Sure, not a problem. I truly understand. Sean said, knowing all too well how long it had taken him to finally believe. He just prayed that Matt would come to accept everything they showed him. Having him on their side would be a great asset and an answer to prayer. Constantly being on the run was starting to put a strain on his family. They needed this. Matt sat up in his chair and stretched. This was good. I like talking with you, and no doubt I'll have more questions for you tomorrow. Same time. Sean nodded. Great, I'm waiting at the books tonight, and do a little research on those fallen angelic names your grandfather mentioned in his journal. I find them, well, rather intriguing. Oh, and if you or your family need anything else, please don't hesitate to ask. If Julie finds anything inadequate with the equipment I supplied her with, I'll take care of it. Sean stood up. You've been extremely hospitable. I can't thank you enough for opening your home to us. My pleasure, Professor, Matt said as he stretched again. Matt watched Sean leave the room. When the door closed, he rolled his eyes and took a deep breath. Blind faith bothered him, and with this group in his compound, he was being exposed to way too much of it. Despite the overwhelming evidence and information they had all provided, he found Sean and Julie the two more credible sources. They didn't fit the typical charismatic Christians. As for Lisa and Amory, he didn't put much weight on what they said. 
He had to be very careful with this group as he figured out how much was fact and how much was fiction. Where this led, he would be confident it would be the actual truth. However, at this moment, he doubted he would ever have the blind faith required to just simply believe that unexplained events were situations where God took control. Matt has seen the results of blind faith from various religions that led to wars, killings, and even mass bombings. Until proven wrong, this one was no different. They saw themselves in a war and were desperately looking to increase their following to make a significant difference in their struggle. It was the journals and Julie's evidence that had piqued his interest. For the time being, he was going to focus on just that. Later that day, everyone sat at the table enjoying a delicious meal of pasta bolognese. Lisa, Anne-Marie, and Julie had labored all afternoon to produce a meal that, when originally served, Brad thought had something to do with bologna. The intentional deception had been Anne-Marie's idea. Brad dug into the meal as though it would be his last while Sean took his time, savoring every bite. With a mouthful of food, Brad expressed his gratitude. This is da best pasta bologna I've ever tasted, Grandma. Well, there's much more once you've finished what's on your plate, she responded. Not for long. This stuff is as good as gone. Wow, Brad said, shoving more food into an already overstuffed mouth. Oh my goodness, you're gonna choke. Slow down. Shot Nicole with food also in her mouth but not as tightly packed as Brad's. There's enough food here to last another day, you know. Huh. Right? Brad mumbled through the food. You just want more of it for yourself. And like you don't? Mikkel responded. First come, first serve. Survival of the fittest, shouted Brad. In your case, the fattest. Hey, shouted Brad, totally surprised by the statement while losing some food from his mouth. Julie leaned over and whispered into Lisa's ear. You think we should tell him there's no bologna in it? Lissa slightly shook her head. Why spoil it? She whispered. He's enjoying it far too much. Sean, said Anne-Marie, getting her son's attention. How was your meeting with Mr. Boucher today? Sean was hesitant to talk about the meeting in front of the kids, but he remembered they'd all agree to keep everyone in the loop about everything since their lives were also affected by every decision made. He still has his doubts. I know he prides himself in having an open mind, but he's still conflicted and may not be that open about the spiritual side of things. Do you think he's going to help us? Asked Lisa, trying to sound more curious than nervous. Well, he's done so much for us so far. I would hope that it won't end there. It looks promising. Are you meeting with him again tomorrow? Asked Anne-Marie. Yep. He's curious about that underground site your father discovered a long time ago. So, I guess I'd have a little homework to do after dinner. There's no belonging in it, shouted Nicole. So stop hiding it all. Liar. Brad mumbled back, catching escaping food with his hand and shoving it back in his mouth. That is like, so gross. Mom, seriously, how long were you going to let this go on? After taking a deep breath, Lisa looked at her son and said, There is no bologna in the food you're eating. Brad immediately stopped eating to assess whether his mother was telling the truth. Once satisfied that she wasn't deceiving him, he quickly swallowed the food and looked at his grandmother. She too confirmed that the dish was bologna-less. No way, but it tastes so good. See, now you can stop acting like an animal and leave some food for tomorrow," Nichols said. Brad looked from the food to his sister several times before shrugging his shoulders. It's still really good, he said, dumping more of the food on his plate. Why wait until tomorrow to eat perfectly good food when you can eat it all today? 
Nicole stared at her brother in disbelief. Oh, forget it. There's no stopping man versus food. Mom, what's for dessert? Before Nissa could respond, Julie leaned over toward her and said, Those two would not have had a problem eating everything King Nebuchadnezzar gave them to eat. Their main concern would be how much food they could consume over the other. Everyone busted out laughing, except for Brad. His mouth was too tightly packed with food. 